I'd like for you to turn to the book of Hosea, the prophet, and I'm reading verses 1 through 4. And today I want us to talk about the judgment, the seeds of judgment that are in every sin. And from chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Now I'm going to be, that is the theme, so it's found in other places. And so I'll be turning to other chapters. You just keep this open on your your lap, if you will. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. In other words, the more they had, the more riches they accumulated, the more they worshiped pagan gods. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely now they will say, We have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? They speak mere words. With worthless oaths they make covenants. And here is the kind of the uh, key to that theme. And judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. To sin is a lot like using a credit card for two reasons. When you use a credit card, it seems like it doesn't cost anything. You ever notice that? I mean, you can go into the store with money in your pocket, and you can plop down your little plastic card, buy something, walk out with the same amount of money. Now, we know it does cost us something, but psychologically, it doesn't feel like it. I mean, it's a lot easier to buy something with a credit card than with cash, you know, break a $20 bill, and out it comes out of my pocket. You know, using a credit card enables you to buy something you can't afford. And then the bill comes due, and I don't know how it is over your your place, but in my house, when we get our credit card bill, I'm going to respond like this. Somebody's been using my credit card. I didn't spend that much. I mean, I didn't buy that much. A tie here, a suit there, a lunch here, you know, a dollar there. And all of a sudden, you know, the credit card bill is, seems a whole lot like somebody's using your card. It, when you use a credit card, it just feels like you can, it doesn't cost you anything. The second reason why it's a lot like using a credit card is this, is that because it doesn't cost us anything right then, it seems like it's never going to cost us anything. Now we know that there will be a day when you have to pay up, but it just doesn't seem like it. And that's one of those psychological barriers that you have to overcome, you know. You know, when Israel sinned and God didn't punish her immediately, Israel had the idea that never would be punished. And there is this kind of feeling that since God doesn't punish sin immediately all the time, 
that he's probably never going to punish sin. And so we, you know, we try this and we get by with it. We think, well, look, I mean, nothing happened. I'll try that again. And we do it again and again. And the Bible says that when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do evil. And that's true. I have a feeling that if God came down hard on us every time we sin, we'd do a whole lot less sinning. And I don't know why it works like this, why God does it like this, but He does. He doesn't judge sin immediately all the time. Uh, sometimes it takes a while. And that's what you find in verse 4 of, of this passage of, of Hosea 10. They plowed and they planted, and they plowed and they planted is the analogy. Nothing happens. And one day some little uh, sprouts begin to sprout in the, did you notice it? In the, in the furrows of the field, right? Where they planted the seeds, little sprouts begin to plant, and they plowed and they planted and they plowed. And then one day they reaped the harvest of those plants growing up in the furrows of the field and found out they were poisonous weeds. And the only thing they harvest of this, the only fruit they harvest of this planting was the fruit of death. Now listen to me carefully. There is a basic principle that this passage teaches, and it's this that every sea, every sin contains within itself seeds of judgment. That God has so built into man certain laws that are fixed and that means they cannot be altered or changed. And if a person thinks he can break those laws, he's terribly mistaken. They are not, they'll never be altered or changed. And so in essence, really, man judges himself. The sin, it, the sin judges us. And God might not intervene and bring judgment when we sin, but you understand what I'm saying? The sin itself bears within it seeds of judgment. For every action, there's a reaction. And for every, for every planting, there's a harvest. And so he's saying, in essence, that when a person sins, that he's just sowing seeds of judgment which will come back at some later time. Now, I want to suggest this morning how sin judges us. And there are three or four ways that that happens. Each one begins with a P to help you remember it. First of all, sin judges us in our person. That is, sin judges us in our physical bodies now I want you to turn with me to chapter 13. Now I want to read verses 7 and 8 of chapter 13. Now look at this. So I'll be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lionist, as a wild beast would tear them. Now I get an impression here that God's not too pleased with what's going on. You get that impression? He's not too happy here. Now there are other places where God refers to Himself in different ways. He refers to Himself as His shepherd. 
He calls himself a father and even a mother. He refers to himself as a husband of a wife and a husband man, that is, the keeper of a vineyard. But in this passage, he refers to himself as a leopard. And I'm told that the characteristic of a leopard is that he will pursue his victim just relentlessly and then crouch and wait until the victim falls in exhaustion, then leap on it. And there's nothing any more vicious than a bear robbed of its cubs. And a lion is the only animal that completely devours its prey. And what God is saying is this, I will judge you in your physical body. I will tear open your chests and I will judge you in your physical person. Now there are other evidences of that in Scripture. I'm going to read you a couple. You might just take the note where, they, where they're found. I won't have, we won't have time to turn to them. Just listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28-30. through 30. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks and he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That's a biblical word for death. Now, what God is saying through Paul is this that if you do not judge your body rightly with regard to the observance of the Lord's Supper, it is possible that you'll be judged in that, you'll be weak and sick, and some even die. There's another verse of Scripture. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Now, I'm going to have to confess, I don't know all there is to know about this verse. But I'm going to tell you what I do know, which isn't much. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 reads like this, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, I don't understand all that's involved in that, but I think it means this, that there is something about sexual sin that's different from all other sins. You say, well, sin is sin, but they're not the same. And there's something happens to a person within his person when he commits sexual sin that is different. It hangs on. And he might go out and, and steal and he can ask forgiveness and make restitution. Everything goes back to normal. But when he commits sin, a sexual sin, it's never the same after that. And we hear these guys that get on television and, and we hear people say, well, we ought to forgive them and let them go on with the work they started doing. Well, I don't because we forget the fact that when a person sins this way, there's something different about that. Now listen to me carefully. I don't want to be misunderstood or misquoted. I do not believe that every time a person sins that he suffers physically. Nor do I believe that physical illness is the result of sin every time. I'd be less than kind if I went into the Cook Children's Hospital and looked at those little children over there suffering from cancer and say, well, they must have sinned. I do not believe 
that every time a person has a physical problem, it's the result of his sin. Some of the greatest saints I know suffer physically. But that is one of God's options. That is an option. And He knows what discipline is best for us. And having said all of that, we can say this, that we all know that there are certain inherent results when we sin against the body. You, you uh, brutalize this body, you abuse this body, and you're going to pay for it. You take alcohol and drugs, you'll suffer for it. I think AIDS might be an example of that. I'm often asked, God, do you believe that God is judging America with the AIDS epidemic? I don't. If I believe that, what about all these little all these people that are suffering innocently. However, I do believe that when a person accepts that lifestyle, he better get ready for physical suffering as a result of it. If you dance with that lifestyle, you're going to have to pay the fiddler in your body. So that what, what Paul is saying, what Hosea is saying, and Paul affirms is that there is something in sin that affects the physical life of the individual. Sin is an intruder into human nature. And when you see somebody who's lived a lifetime of sin, you can see it in the lines of their faces, can you not? I heard this pastor tell about a preacher friend of his in the seminary. He was number one preacher. He got the... Big church while he was in seminary. Everybody envied him. He was on his way. He said he divorced his wife and married a younger woman. They divorced. He got out of the ministry. He said he was preaching revival in a city in Oklahoma. I think he was in Oklahoma City. And he said that guy showed up there at the revival. And they were talking before the service. He asked his friend, how are you doing? He said, oh, fine. Everything's fine. But he said, I noticed when I was sitting on the platform... And while the people were singing the hymns, he never sang a word. He lost his song. God judges us. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. Verse 12. And I will destroy her vines and fig trees of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field will devour them. Now what he's saying is, is that I gave Israel all that she has and the ability to acquire it, and she took these special gifts and these luxuries that I lavished on her, and she gave them to false lovers, to false gods. It'd be like you giving somebody, a loved one or a friend, some, some gift and find out a couple of weeks later they gave it to somebody else. That'd bless you, wouldn't it? Did you, did you read Dear Abby yesterday? This lady wrote in Dear Abby and she said that her neighbor uh, fixed a little uh, dress and bonnet for her daughter. 
and she brought it over and she gave it to this lady and so she dressed her daughter up in this dress and bonnet took her down and had her picture made and she took this picture and bought a nice frame and put her daughter's picture in it and gave it to the neighbor who had given her daughter this dress and bonnet and she was over at the neighbor's house a couple of weeks later and saw the frame and it was sitting up on a on a mantle didn't have her daughter's picture in had had the lady's dog a picture of the lady's dog in there. And she, she wasn't too high on that. In fact, she wanted the picture back and the frame. I mean, she was writing Dear Abby, pouring out her heart about that. You know. <laughs> now, the point is that God is saying, I've given all this stuff to you. And I have given you the talents and abilities that has enabled you to succeed. Now what have you done with it? You've turned it over to false gods. This is what I'm going to do with it. He said, I'm going to take away those things that I've given you. You're going to wake up one morning and they're gone. Corey Ten Boom said, If you've got anything in your hand that God wants, you might as well go ahead and give it to Him. Because it sure is painful when he has to pry open the fingers. I've had some of that prying open the fingers. I can tell you it's painful. He said, I'm not only going to take away what I have given you that you've given to other gods, but I'm going to destroy the ability to accumulate. So here's an old boy who plants the same seed, does the same cultivation, never makes a crop. Can't understand what happened. Here's a businessman who applies the same business principles that he's always applied, but he just loses everything, can't get ahead. I'm going to destroy the ability to acquire, he said. And the third thing he said was, I may not take it away from you. I may not destroy your ability to acquire it, but I am going to destroy your ability to enjoy it. That's even greater. It's like a little boy who has all the toys that he'll ever want. He plays with them a couple of weeks and wakes up one morning and he's no lo- they're no longer fun. He no longer enjoys them. How many parents wake up in the middle of the night, have awakened in the middle of the night crying? We'd give up all of this that we have if we could have our children back. And how many husbands wakes up in the middle of the night crying I'll give it all back if I just had my marriage back. And how many of you have said, I wouldn't have this stuff that I have. I'd give it all back if I could have my name back, my health back, my reputation back, my integrity back. It's not worth it. And so God says, you take those things that I give you and you prostitute them and I'll bring you to the place where you won't even enjoy them anymore. He judges us in our possessions. Third, He judges us in our prosperity with a T. Prosperity. Now I want you to look there in the second chapter at verse 4. Also I have no compassion on her children because they are children of idolatry. And what God is saying is this, I'm not going to give her, your children anything, and that's going to be your judgment. 
Now, if you turn over to the book of Exodus, you're going to read a remarkable and frightening statement. God is giving the Ten Commandments for His people to observe and keep, and He makes this statement. He said, I will punish the sins of the fathers upon the heads of the, sin of the children. Now, somebody will ask me, they'll say, Pastor, do you believe that God punishes us through our children? My answer is no. I don't believe that. I don't believe that God punishes us by punishing our children. And it's weird to even think that, in my opinion, humble and accurate. So you say, well, what do you do with a passage like that in the Old Testament? Well, the fact is that there is an Old Testament revelation that progresses to a New Testament revelation. So that the Old Testament revelation of God moves in progression to a higher revelation in the New Testament. I don't care what anybody says. What we read in the Old Testament is not the full and final revelation. There is a progression of that revelation in the New Testament. So that I judge the Old Testament by the New Testament, I don't judge the New Testament by the Old Testament. So you ask then, what statements in the Old Testament are applicable to us in the New Testament age? I mean, what do we read in the Old Testament that we still apply to us today? Well, let me give you the answer. The rule is this. The Old Testament statement that is applicable in the New Testament age is that statement which is retaught or reiterated in the New Testament. Are you with me? Now, when I get to the New Testament, I don't read anywhere where it says God will punish children because their father sinned. What I actually read is in the Old Testament is this. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will be judged for his own iniquity. Now I want to teach you something so you stay with me. What he's saying is this, that when you get over into the New Covenant, into the New Testament, no longer is it true that God is going to visit, visit the iniquity of the fathers on the heads of the children. We're going to be responsible for our own sin. And I can't excuse somebody else for my sin. Nor can I ever think or believe that God's going to judge me and my children. Now having said that, we say this. We all know that most of the time a child's lifestyle will be determined by what he sees in his parents. Recent research gives evidence of the fact that a child who grows up with an alcoholic father or mother will most likely be an alcoholic. And every child who has been abused will be most likely an abuser. That's just a fact. So in a covert way, indirectly, the child does suffer the sin of his parent. Now, the Old Testament deals in the physical, in the material. As a matter of fact, salvation is hardly ever taught as a spiritual thing in the, in, the New, in the Old Testament. It's taught of salvation is really physical or material deliverance. But I can, now watch this carefully, I can draw from the Old Testament statement a spiritual application. And here is one spiritual application. Listen to me. 
that I can draw from the Old Testament. The spiritual children will suffer the sin of the spiritual father. Now you say, what in the world does that mean? I'm fixing to tell you. You know why we have a dead, why we have dead churches in our day? I'm not talking about this church. It's obvious this church is not dead. You know why we have backsliding churches today? It's because we have backsliding churches yesterday. And I could take you this morning into some mainline denominations, churches of mainline denominations, that not too long ago were on fire for God. I mean, they were zealous and and preaching the gospel with power, and it was obvious that God was moving there, and they are dead as a tomb. Let me tell you why. Because gradually and even imperceptibly, we begin to slip away from the basic center of the truth of God, and now we're reaping the consequences of it. And that's what Jesus meant when He told His disciples. He said, whatever you have bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And what He was saying was this, that no longer is it that the people of God, what they do is, will be indirect or peripheral. It will have eternal significance. So what you do as a church, remember, it's going to be what your children grow up in. He judges us in our posterity. One last thought and then we're out of here. He judges us in our privileges. I'm going to talk about the privilege of worship. Verse 11, chapter 2. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbath, and all her festal, festal assemblies. Let me tell you what he's saying. Listen to me. He's saying, this is going to be the judgment of your sin. You no longer will have the privilege of worship. Now, there was a time when that wouldn't have been a bad deal, I thought. You know, as a kid growing up, my parents drug me to church every time the doors opened. And I memorized that verse of Scripture. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go in the house of the Lord. I thought, the guy who wrote that must have not had much to do. I mean... To say I was glad to go to church. I mean, I was drugged to church. And I thought to myself, boy, will it ever be that I won't ever have to go to church again. I talk to people all the time and say, I don't go to church anymore. My parents made me go to church when I was a kid and I don't like it. I didn't like it then, I don't like it now. I, 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 I suppose that the most frightening thought I could have this morning is the thought that I couldn't come to God's house and worship anymore. That's a scary thought. You ask those people in Eastern Europe, those communist bloc countries, how important worship is to them. They stand all day long to listen to a sermon outside the building. Now this is what God says. He said, there is a seed of judgment in your sin, and this is the seed. You no longer will worship. Second, worse than that, he said, you'll worship, but you won't enjoy it. I'll take away the gaiety and the fun of your feast days. Vance Habner said, watch the church on Sunday morning when it gives up its dead. 
And people drag themselves out like they drag themselves in and nothing happens there. True story, really true story. Some preachers were talking one day and one said to the other, he said, I'm not going to identify these, use names to protect the innocent. One of them said, you know, when the Lord called me to preach, he knew that if he didn't call me to preach, I'd probably never go to church unless I had to, I mean, unless they paid me to. And the guy said to him, he said, why don't you like to go to church? And he said, for the same reason, I don't like to go to funerals. When did it, what, when, when was it that we stopped enjoying, I mean, we stopped having fun at church? Now, I'm not talking about this dancing in the aisles, this superficial stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this celebration of the presence of God. There's nothing like it on earth. When did we stop having fun coming to church? The followers of St. Francis of Assisi had to be asked to leave the church because they laughed too loud. You know where the Methodists got their songs? You ask some of your Methodist friends. You know where they got their songs? They went down to the dance halls and the saloons and they got the music and they put their words to it because it had life. That's where they got them. Some of the songs you sing in your, your hymnal, true story, came out of a saloon or a dance hall. I mean, there was a time when people went to church and it was the most exciting thing they did. And it's a sad commentary that the seed of our sin has grown to the place where we literally despise it. Hate to go. Just go because I have to. Go because I kind of expect it to. No worship, no joy of worship. Now I want to sum this up with this statement. What we've been talking about this morning is the law of penalties. And there is a law of penalties, and it's this, that the greatest judgment God could bring upon a people or a nation is to give them what they want. Now Israel got tired of manna, and they griped, and they grumbled about manna. Don't blame them. You ever eat any of that? It's kind of like chalk, I hear. I mean, we, we, we've, uh, we've glorified manna in our songs, and we, you know... I probably got tired of it. They, they griped about manna, so they wanted meat. They said, we want meat, we want meat. And God said, okay, I'm going to give you meat. I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to run out your nostrils. They got what they wanted, and that was their judgment. You know, the greatest judgment of the prodigal son, it was he got what he wanted. He got what he wanted. Are you listening to me? We're living in a generation that cries for no restraint and we make fun of preachers and politicians who talk about restraint who would put some boundaries around life and we are clamoring for a an age of no restraint we want our rights and our freedoms let me tell you something we are getting what we have always wanted and that's our judgment 
doesn't have to be like this. Hosea said, God longs to make your children happy. And He longs to make your life fulfilled. And He longs for you to have the right kind of prosperity. And He longs to bless you on the condition that you sow to yourselves righteousness and that you break up the fallow ground and that you seek the Lord until He comes. And He's just waiting for that to happen. Would you pray? Our Father, help us to understand that whatever we do as an action has a corresponding reaction and that within the seed of the action is the fruit of the reaction. Let us examine our heart, cause us to evaluate our life, and then, Father, bring us to the place of commitment to Christ and to Your way. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. Look here. We invite you this morning to come and give your life to Jesus Christ. The greatest decision you will ever make is the decision to surrender the control of your life to Jesus. To repent of the style of life that says no to God and commit your heart to Him. Second invitation, and these are simultaneous, is for you to come and place your life in this church. Perhaps you're a student here on the campus and you're going to be here this semester. It's time to get in a local church. We want you to come place your life here if God leads you to do that. Or perhaps there are those of us who need to say, God, I have drifted from the original intent, the divine intent. I want to come back to you and I want to recommit my life to you and rededication. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.